Hello, I'm Noah, your host, and this is The In-Between Project. This conversation was recorded on January 4th, 2021. Today, I have an important guest named Dr. Malik Moazam Dolat, who teaches in the pathbreaking and transdisciplinary Critical Theory and Social Justice Department at Occidental College in Los Angeles. His research and teaching focuses on contemporary political theory with an emphasis on the relationship between Middle Eastern, Islamic, and European political and philosophical responses to modernity and imperialism. He has worked for the ACLU of Southern California, where he currently serves as a member of the board. His political work focuses on housing and homelessness, as well as a long engagement with surveillance and modes of control. This work included post-9-11 public policy and civil liberty campaigns addressing the issues faced by the Muslim, Arab, and Iranian communities in Southern California. Wow. Hello. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So before we dive into your work and go through the evolution of, of your journey, I just wanted to open with a question a little bit more personal that's framed this podcast. Um, that question is, what does home mean to you? Has the idea and feeling of home for you evolved over your life? Is home a place, a group of people, a sense of self, um, a language even? So however you want to answer that. Hmm. Yeah, that's, um, I'll just answer it personally, which is a uh, unusual way to answer a question uh, for me, but my upbringing was such that uh, we moved a great deal. And, you know, so I was, so the answer to your question is, I really have never had a sense of home until I got married and we raised kids. So now I do not have a very warm, fuzzy feeling of home. Um, so the, the kind of question in the context in which you're asking it, you know, there's no statement between this and culture and ethnicity and nationality. Um, uh, no, uh, I did not grow up with that sense in part because of the complex circumstances. So that's how I would describe it. Not until very recently. How's that? Yeah, definitely. Sense of home and sense of belonging can take a long time in an evolution of many turns. And can I ask where you're, where you were born or where you're originally from and where you moved throughout your life that kind of that created this uprooted feeling for you? Uh, yeah. Um, see, I was born in uh, Iran, in Tehran, Iran. Um, my father's Iranian, um, and his side of the family is pretty deeply rooted in Iranian culture and politics. And uh, my mother is uh, American, but was raised in Europe. So um, her father was in the military, and they moved all over the place. As far as I know, she spent very little time in the United States. I was born in 1969, and we left Iran right, at, you know, close to the last second someone could leave Iran when the revolution started, if um, one was trying to come to the United States or come directly to the West, for a bit. There was a bit of a problem of leaving at that point. Um, and I think a lot of people didn't have to leave. I mean, if you're Iranian, both sides of your family are Iranian. But my mom's blonde, blue-eyed. American. Um, and that created some tension. 
uh, obviously. Um, so we, we fled. Um, but while I was there, I was also the American kid. So, so I was never fully Iranian. And then when we fled and came to the United States, we came on the heels of the hostage crisis. And so there was a lot of like on the news and there was, you know, it was as bad as things are now um, with regard to, you know, various forms of ethnic discrimination and bigotry, which is very common. It was, there was no check on it uh, then. <laughs> so kids would hear their parents talking about the news. And then, so I was the Iranian kid, uh, the camel jockey. And then we moved constantly uh, as we came to the United States. So we moved every year, it felt like, for a long time uh, until I was in high school. So so that that odd neither nor culturally, and then the fleeing, I guess you'd have to call it expected political persecution. Who knows? Maybe it would have been fine. Uh, and then, you know, moving across the United States as much as we did uh, meant that I was just felt like I was nowhere, uh, right? So... I don't think that's an unusual experience either. Um, so people know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, that's – I didn't even know like that that was your experience in – even as a child in Iran that you were the American, right? Yeah. So that's from the get-go, from the beginning. You were already like belonging and not belonging ever, really. Right. That, that's it's a, I think it's pretty common for – I mean, it, dep- it also depends. Like, So the political circumstances make a difference, right? So – when this was kicking up, I was 10 when I left, right? So I was very young. Um, but in those last five years, those were years of real political upheaval in Iran. And the British and, you know, the British were already hated um, for their involvement. And the United States was increasingly seen as an oppressive imperial power. So in that circumstance, being the American, while like, look, American culture was very popular in the middle and upper classes, and, you know, everyone listened to heavy metal and you know, fog hat and deep purple. And I grew up listening to Elvis, but there was that tinge, right? So it had the same quality of being something negative uh, when I was in Iran to have that American side, even though it was kind of cool in a weird way. Um, so yeah, it, it, you know, it, it creates a kind of uh, non place, right? A non belonging that's unavoidable. Uh, nothing to do with me. I didn't choose any of that. It wasn't like a, not trying to make a virtue out of a necessity or anything but yeah no yeah. i mean it was the circumstances and yeah how you had to adapt and survive and that makes me wonder about you know in coming to terms with who you are or like all these parts about you or having moved so much you know now you're collecting all of these places but not really settling and putting roots if you're moving so much um was there ever a moment where you came to like Think about, okay, well, this is how I'm going to present myself to the world now. You know, whether that remained this kind of like your initial presentation of, oh, this is who I am at whatever age. I'm thinking maybe adolescence, especially in American culture and society, which, you know, imposes a lot of assimilation or the expectation to assimilate um, because anything that marks someone as other is makes someone vulnerable. So I guess I circle back to ask, you know, how did this affect your sense of self? Yeah. And your evolution of understanding who you are, where you belong. That's, you know, the hardest possible. <laughs> yeah. So, um, <laughs> so yeah. weirdly, I gave a, a talk, you know, a couple of years ago uh, where I thought about this for the first time in my adult life, really, like this, the way you asked it, actually. And it was kind of surprising uh, what emerged from that reflection. Uh, and it was something like, it's really situational. 
and that context is usually about conflict. Okay, so people coming from Central Mexico, Central and South America into the United States. There's political contestation around that that identity, like being a person in the United States, right? So you never get to not be Latino or Latina, right? You don't get to not be that. Someone makes that decision for you. And so you're in a situation where you find yourself, I I assume, because, you know, I just can see the political situation where even if you wanted to assimilate, you don't have that choice really, right? It's not really an option. Um, not in some terrible, I mean, there's all, there's terrible elements to that and really dire elements to that, but I just mean in a simple epistemological way, like the way of thinking, um, you're always being confronted by your otherness. Um, and I think a common experience, and it was certainly mine, I've had talked to other people who said this and read people say this was when I first got here, I was being warned constantly not to forget that I was Iranian by my mm-hmm. family, my Iranian family. Because they understood the value of having multiple languages, of being able to go back and forth and how much, what a virtue that was, you know. But I really wanted to do was just not be noticed. Right, yeah. Right. Um, But that was not possible. So increasingly, except for, and I'll come to the except for in a moment, except for this one circumstance, um, I was more Iranian when I first came to California, for instance, uh, or when I was in Kansas or New York or Chicago, than I ever felt when I was in Iran. Uh, because, you know, it's sort of like that's pushed on you in a way. And I, my personality, uh, I would say for better or for worse, but mostly for worse, uh, is that when I'm pushed like that, I just become bellicose. So the more they did that, the more, it, you know, I, there was a tendency among Iranians who wanted to not be persecuted, to claim they're Persian, because that's ambiguous. No one, no kid knows what Persian is, but they hear Iranian on the news. I just went ahead and called myself Iranian, because that's how, you know, people said it. So in that sense, my sense of self um, in Iran was, in a way, forced on me. I was more American than, you know, than when I got here for a long time. And then it kind of faded. So for a long time, I was very Iranian. The only time, the except for, was when I was being bused to a school in Los Angeles that was predominantly black and Latino. And there, it was not an issue. Um, you know, it was, we were all dealing with being bused. <laughs> um, that was a totally different set of circumstances. and. One of my favorite experiences, actually, and I never thought about why, but starting to percolate in my mind why. <laughs> so, um, so yes, so it feels very contextual and and conflictual. So I always say, this is my my new line. It's kind of jokey, but it's serious. Which is, I'm exactly as Iranian as you make me be. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, so for instance, I'm ethnically ambiguous looking. I think. You know, like you wouldn't pick me out of a crowd as being this or that, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, but if I have to show my driver's license to somebody or my passport to somebody, that's much worse. Then things are very different. Mm-hmm. So my name is, it stands out in certain places. It's a real problem. My passport is a real problem because it says I was born in Iran. And so that fact often will enforce, you know, a kind of Iranian reactive identity right? That I can't help but have. It's not a choice. Did I answer your question or did I just lose track there? No, that was great. That actually brought up a lot of points. Um, It seems like there's a spectrum to who gets to, you know, be ambiguous and that's a a survival thing. You know, how do I put that survival thing? Uh, I mean, like it can benefit or just help protect you. And then on the other end of that spectrum is like, you can't like wash off the way you look or the way you 
present in the world, right? So that just got me thinking about, like you said, you can be as Iranian as someone makes you to be. And that's interesting because it sounds like you know how to navigate different spaces depending on the context, depending on the crowd. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it like that. That that I see okay. what you're getting at. Yes, yes. Uh, what I meant was more like um, the idea of an ethnic identity doesn't really occur to me very often. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't ever think of myself as. I mean, this and, and this is the you know the weird ambiguity of the situation. That is that I don't feel like I have some kind of ethnic, national, racial identity. It's not how I experience my life. So I don't feel either Iranian or American when I'm existing. I'm just being. And then in certain circumstances, the way that people um, and social pressures act on me mean that the Iranian, you know, Iranian ethnicity, nationality, whatever, become extremely uh, important because I'm going to be, have my nation, my, my citizenship stripped or I'm going to be attacked or I'm going to be held at the airport or, you know, I'm concerned about the policeman who pulled me over. You can, you never know. So in those moments, like Iranianness becomes more pronounced as a, as a part of my identity, almost in reaction to possible consequences. And I would say the same thing about Americanness, right? So mm-hmm. when I'm traveling, when I'm with my Iranian family or something, I recognize certain parts of me. Uh, certain aspects of acculturation, history, my responses that are foregrounded by the problem I'm facing, right? Like some sort of a problem I have to address in in a social interaction. And that's what I mean by that. So mostly though, I mean, I've been here a long time now. Um, so mostly I, you know, I've, I move comfortably through American society. It's not a problem, you know? Uh, so I, I feel very much in that sense assimilated. But so the identity thing just doesn't come up. Um, I, I don't experience it as something um, foundational or grounding, uh, something subtending uh, my experience. It just isn't there. Uh, and, and I think the thing we've talked about, and I think that you've really connected to and, and pushed and thought about really well, is this notion of in-between. And, and so like this will be my last line about this, which is there's something about in between that I think people don't hear as well as they should, which is it's a neither nor, right? So, so this is why, for instance, discussions of hybridity, transnationalism or something don't do anything for me. I'm sure they do a lot of work for other people, but hybridity gives you the sense of mixture. Right. Um, and mostly what I feel and transnationality means like I feel myself like in a way um, above nationality. Right, um, uh, it, it's almost got a cosmopolitan ring to it. Um, I don't feel that either. What I mostly feel is a neither nor, right, and a not being at home, mm-hmm. and occasionally being called. You know, dem- a demand is made by a circumstance that says, like, "Hey, you have to." You know, you're being seen as this, right? You know, and then I have to grapple with that fact, right. and so. Um, I don't think that comports with much of the academic literature, which is about a kind of fragmentation or cultural schizophrenia, right? Where you go back and forth. I don't have that experience. I just mostly feel um, in between. 
that experience is very important because your point about you know transnationality or uh, hybridity or mixedness is very much about multiple feet in many worlds, right? And a sense of belonging in many places and also belonging nowhere. But I think the experience of just really neither nor, you know, not really belonging anywhere. And that's, you know, how you move through the world. Um, I think that's very valid. I actually, I relate to that in the sense of these very categorical identities uh, are not at the forefront of my mind when I consider who I am. When I think about my sense of self, I'm just being, right? Until the external world imposes, you know, whatever identity I technically fall under. And so then I have to like, okay, well, yeah, technically I am that, or I represent this, or I show up as this, or this is how this person's going to react to me, depending on my name, how I look. But knowing that inside, that that's just not really how at your core you understand yourself. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. And yeah, I, I mean, you touched on the, the topic of hybridity, which reminded me of the class I took which was your post-colonialism theory class. I wanted to ask, how do you define hybridity? And why do you think in like the arena of identity politics, there's a resistance to the idea of hybridity, even though it's not your experience? Like, yeah, you could just offer your thoughts on that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We can, you know, try this a couple different ways. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult and important question. For me personally, the way I experience these things Identity politics makes sense as a political tactic, right? It's a defensive position, right? So um, we can even say that, and this is being very kind, uh, about white identity politics, which is uh, an emerging majority-minority country has people who identify themselves with you know, whiteness and the history of white supremacy spooked. We'll call it spooked. Again, I'm being very nice because we're on a podcast. And, um, it's defensive. It's a it's a rallying. What people want to read a, a text to understand identity politics. To me, it's Carl Schmitt's uh, concept of the political, which I often teach, uh, and I only teach it because I feel like it's so instructive for understanding how identity politics work. Which is there's an existential threat. There's an experience of existential threat. So now we'll leave the white supremacists behind here, um, and there's an attempt to protect or defend who one is and makes you in a way identify with cultural markers and categories that are maybe entirely reactive and artificial. I mean, you know, like they're invented in that context for a defensive purpose. So I understand identity politics and why politically it's extremely important, but it also feels to me not a rich explanation of our lives. And I think while important and useful, have to the identities like that should always be kept in mind as provisional lest they become dangerously conflictual right so they become like a they become in a sense substantial and metaphysical as though they are incommensurable with one another right there's always a danger in identity politics collapsing into a kind of metaphysical sense of permanence you know ahistoricality right and like they're fixed yeah. or like you're locked down in them forever. Locked down yeah. in them. And also, therefore, you can't be something else or the other cultures are a threat, right? So it, it, it in a way, put it, it perpetuates the conflict. 
I think. Right. It can. Even though tactically I understand them. Hybridity, I think, is a reaction to that problem to me, the, the concept, right? So I think of Homi Baba, early thinker of fragmentation and identity. And it seemed like it was an attempt to understand the hyphen, right? Iranian-American, Venezuelan-American, you know, whatever, whatever that is, right? So Indian, English, you know. And it's, it, it seemed to suggest some kind of blending, right? Like a new thing. Right. Um, like a new identity. So that's how I've always read it. I think intersectionality is really interesting with regard to hybridity. Like it's like the flip version of hybridity, which would be like all the different ways in which you are affected with an A by society, like these different identity formations that, uh, you know, that are social imposed on you and then become sites of the exertion of power, right. class, race, gender, sexuality, body type, and so on. Hybridity, if it could understand the sort of provisionality of that, right? Those, those things are provisional. They're social constructs and categories that are applied to you. They shift over very short periods of time, like how they function, what kind of power is applied to them, what's expected or, or imposed on you. Then I would like hybridity as a term. Okay. Well, I only ask because going back to, you know, the, the intensity of identity politics to, you know, lock down individuals and define and, you know, and that, that has the threat, like you said, of kind of becoming ahistorical. Like it's always been this way, you know, this is what it has always been to me to be X, Y, Z, right? Yeah. Um, and then I think in this political moment, you know, I understand why, like, there's such an, an intensity about defining. And then I feel like there's a resistance to to people who who feel like no I'm neither nor or you know I'm in this in between space or and I, I I you know I think of people for example of mixed race face a lot of backlash for just kind of not identifying or not really totally giving all of themselves to one side or one group or one race and so I I bring up hybridity because I feel like there's also a a sort of resentment towards people who might seem like they're mixed or whatever. You know, I'm here having, I'm hosting a podcast about in-betweenness and mixedness and, and, but I know like this could be controversial, right? To give a voice to the people who, <laughs> who don't really want to identify in one way or another. Okay. So like you, I understand. On the other hand, and I, and I got challenged on this pretty meaningfully uh, by a professor at Occidental, a friend of mine named Stephen Clem, um, who's from Iowa, European, Northern European ancestry, been in Iowa or in the Midwest as, you know, for generations and generations. And um, I was explaining to him, you know, what we're talking about. And I was making a kind of universalizing claim about the experience that you and I seem to share, this kind of provisionality, this neither nor, this in between, which I've taken to calling preposterously being exilic, like being in exile, right? This kind of exile-like mode of being. And he said, that sounds amazing, but that's totally not a universal experience. Definitely don't talk about it like a universal experience. So what I think about it is, um, and that's correct, right? So it is possible to experience yourself at home for some people, in an identity for some people, as belonging, right? And making a claim for some people. I just don't have that experience. And I think, you know, the way I like to talk about it is 
I can see the dangers of the arguments for purity, for identity in a closed and complete way, and this this sort of like um, reticence, even fear of being transformed. Um, I'm naturally drawn to Derrida and Nietzsche in European philosophy for this reason, where there's this sense of the unavoidability of being affected, being transformed. And so you're engaged with an atmosphere and forces that shape you. And therefore, purity is at best, at best, a pipe dream. At best. Largely what it is to me is a form of panic. Right? It's a panicked reaction. And when identity politics takes that form for me, this kind of panicked closure, which is I was describing in a metaphysical way before, that seems problematic to me. Because then it becomes, of course, existentially threatening to be engaged with somebody else. They have to be excluded. They're a threat to the, you know, what it is that you are. And then, you know, violence becomes a natural reaction in that regard. Even if I will, if I can totally understand the tactical move to identity politics, I just can't get behind a purity politics. It just doesn't make sense to me at any level, politically, philosophically, ontologically, morally. It just doesn't make any sense to me in that regard. Yeah, that's something I've been thinking a lot about, I guess, to, to respond to everything you just said. And I'll try to break it down. Like, one, the fact that nobody cannot be affected or transformed, right? There's, you, you will be shaped by the conditions of the world and they, those conditions will continue to change and who you were or what your home once was will not be the same by the end of your life, right? But then like when you touched on the panic that happens, right? When people start to realize there's no way to control or kind of lock down in, in who their sense of the, their selves are, that's where I think... Uh, I think there's panic, but I also think there's like this, this sadness or like this, like everyone just wants to go home. I see this on the side of maybe the far left political spectrum and also on the side of the far right. Uh, there's this sense of wanting to go home or to belong or to return to a, to what once was. Um, and it just like, it goes to show like, yeah, the world is always rapidly changing, right? There's so many forces at play and people are scared. That scares people. Uh, if you are clinging on or you were, you were fed this idea of who you were and what your country was. And, you know, I'm thinking of like ethno-nationalism, right? From the far right. That's happening all over the world right now. Um, not just in the US. I'm thinking about in Poland even. And then I think about more left-leaning politics where we're really trying to, or not we, but the politics are really trying to get at what it means to really be a certain race or culture. Like, let's go back to the practices. Let's decolonize. Let's get back to our pure state. Because in our history, we were, we were oppressed or we were influenced or we had no say. We are something, a, a term someone came up with or told me about was like, to be the involuntary Westerner, right? Like you didn't have a choice in being Westernized. Um, and so you're trying to get back to who you really are before that. And yeah, I, I don't know if it's fair to say it's the same because I feel like politics on the far right might be very hateful, but I also know politics on the far left can also be very much, much about you know division and conflict. And that's like the polarization that's happening all across the world. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I just wanted to respond. There's a lot of things there, a lot of good stuff in there. So I would say 
uh, one area that you know you've touched on is nativism as a you know it's a very well established category in thinking about imperialism and colonialism and and so nativism let's just like put forward a kind of working definition that we can sort of be on the same page about it would be something like in the face of a cultural, political, social power that is imposing itself on you and transforming your culture, dominating it in some sense. Um, the attempt to avoid that, you know, uh, go around that, find a, a, a solution to that imposition by returning, as you said, to what you were before. So nativism is an attempt to return to an authentic identity that isn't affected by the colonial imperial power. So let's let, let me do the thing I do about that, if you don't mind. So, because yes, um, it just it picks up all the themes that you brought up, right? It just it just brings them, uh, it just picks them up. They're they're all there in what you said, which is for me, all these nationalities, ethnicities, these identities are myths in the sense that they're founding stories that are meant to rally you, right? Give you, uh, like you said, a home of some kind. So for me, as if I can go back to our original part of our conversation, homes are myths, right? So for me, like, I don't know, maybe other people have different experiences, but a home in a way is a myth and in, in the political sense, um, boy, the everyone wants to go home is such a great thing. Now, let me come back to that in a moment. But you invent a story about what things were like, but just any effort at reading history about any culture will tell you, almost any culture, almost any culture, the long long history of dialogue, transformation, conquest, change, right, of that culture in relationship to other cultures, whether they conquered and then were transformed through the conquest, um, or they were the conquerors and were transformed in their conquest, um, or they were just, you know, neighbors and they just shared culture. But there are no pure cultures. And all those in moments of invention of like true Iranianness are truly myths, right? A story you tell yourself in a situation to ground an identity for some purpose. So for me, myths are always political. They're, they're always a way of building a people, an identity for combat. It, you know, whether it's literally combat or, you know, uh, defense of the boundaries in, in some more broad sense. That's how I feel. So like, um, Everyone wants to go home is such a sweet and poignant thing to say. But let me just say that, uh, you know, I have kids and my kids at different times during this pandemic have said while they were home in a joking way, I just want to go home. <laughs> you know, that sense yeah. it's like, it's just so stressful and it's so dangerous and it's so upsetting. You just want that feeling of security, safety, you know, on, not being assaulted from the outside. And I think, as I said in the beginning, I just have never had that experience. Not really, you know, not in any social and political way. So that impulse, that nostalgic, literally nostalgic impulse is about invention. It's about the invention of an identity that will make you feel safe. So no, I don't think it's rooted in anything real. Even if there was a culture, an Iranianness. Uh, we want to bracket it historically, right? So we'll just pick an Iran before the British showed up, in, you know, in the nineteenth century, in the eight, late eighteenth century. Just bracket it. So eighteenth century to what? We have to invent a time when true Iranianness was. So we'll say the Safavids, 
So we'll go back to like the 1500s. We'll say those 300 years was really Iran. But of course, if you know anything about the history of Iran, Iran has been crisscrossed by every culture in the world. You know, Islam is from the Arabian Peninsula and the Levant. So those are always invented categories. You're always going home to an invented home uh, for me. So let me, let me talk about ethno-nationalism, which is the other theme which is common here, which is my current way of thinking about the rise of global ethno-nationalism. And it's not, as you said, the United States alone, obviously. We're a little bit late to it. It's, you know, everywhere in Europe. It's in Asia. It's in Southeast Asia. Um, and I think it's not wrong to see the rise of it, at least in, in an important part, being due to the threat of the climate crisis hmm. and the inevitable rise of refugees from outside of Europe right into Europe. And I think that while the corporate and right-leaning elites have been denying climate change or, you know, pushing it off or not taking it seriously in public, if you look at the documents, they're all planning for it behind closed doors. They take it very seriously behind closed doors. Um, insurance companies, the military, everyone. It's if you, if you look at military priorities right now in the United States, it is the top concern. It's the highest ranked. It was at one point. I don't know if it's changed now, but at one point when I was doing this research, it was the highest ranked concern, security concern for the United States was climate crisis. And I think a lot of the language around ethno nationalism is about this emerging refugee crisis that's coming. It's already here, but it's coming in larger and larger numbers as. Places become flooded, uh, agriculture fails, you know, people move out of the climates that are first affected. So there's an invention of a European identity and a new invention of being Hungarian, of being Polish, of being English, of being American, of the sudden concern uh, with immigrants and what, what was it called? The immigrant train or whatever that was coming from Central and South America or whatever the idea was when Trump first came to office. The, these concerns... The invention of whiteness and the reinvention of a whiteness against this, I think, is one way to think about how circumstances create identities tactically. I hadn't thought about making that link between ethno-nationalism and the threat of the existential threat of the climate crisis, but it makes so much sense in the way of here is the biggest uh, force threat that is so out of anyone's control, you know, going to totally not allow for anyone to ever go back to the myth of their home. And then, yeah, also to your point about like the link between refugee crises and the climate crisis. And I, I think, it, like you said, it's already started, but it's like under different names right now, right? It's like political or like there's civil wars or it's, um, I don't know, it's the government. But of course, it has to do with resources and like lack of resources and where's money going and are resources being distributed, right? And then, you know, not being able to, to live. Um, I would, so one, one fun way to track political anxieties is through horror movies. Oh my God. Yeah. Just for, just for fun. Right. I'm, telling, I'm just saying this for fun. I'm not an expert in any of this, but, um, there's been a lot of zombie movies. Yes. Right. So what was the TV show, which I normally know the name of, I'm not trying to be that guy, um, where the, the zombies are everywhere and guys shoot them and oh, walking dead, the walking, walking dead, dead. not yes. day of the dead, which, you know, um, so I heard a I heard a really cool interpretation of like seventies and eighties zombie movies, which were about like the outcast kids and thinkers looking at the consumerist zombies, you know, like they're always in malls and public places, right? 
Um, but I but I was watching a clip um, of World War Z mm-hmm. uh, with Brad Pitt, and it looks like they're in the Middle East. I, I don't know if they're. I, I've not seen the movie uh, just because I, I would love to see the movie. I just haven't had time to watch it. Where they're essentially, it looks like they're in like Jerusalem or something, you know. And so like there are the mud walls and everything, and all these zombies are coming. And I know this is like one obvious interpretation here is, you know, Israel and the Palestinians or something. But I just kept looking at it and I just kept seeing the, you know, it's an American movie. I just, it just looked to me like Europe looking at the hordes coming who need food and water. And either there's too much water, everything's flooded and it's dirty and you can't use it and it destroys everything or there's no water and nothing will grow. And I just think of like the current batch of zombie movies is tied to this general cultural anxiety. So, you know, all, all things are always happening from, you know, the way I see it, they're always happening in multiple ways for multiple reasons, not a single answer for why things are happening. But at the same time, the civil rights movement has progressed so far. You know, I know that sounds controversial to say, but it's progressed so far that we're moving on to these, like, you know, finally dealing, finally dealing with police violence. It, you know, it, people woke up, enough people woke up for it to be a mass movement, not just the African-American community fighting for their lives. Um, but other people could stand up and say like, oh my God, that's right. Like we've, you know, there's a consciousness raising so that there's a tactical connection to this identity politics at the same time, which then feels like there's an inside attack as well, while the elites see this outside attack coming. And I think the anxiety around this stuff is very real, you know, and while there's a civil rights movement for, you know, sexuality, gender, body type, as well as race, the lockdown in the state of the United States, the apartheid wing of American life, you know, the white supremacist apartheid wing of American life, because there's, you know, there's this ethno-nationalist rise in relationship to the potential breakdown of the West, another great myth. It's just more violent than it would be, right? So it's hard for it to resolve itself, it feels like. It just gets worse and worse. You know, it's not as though uh, anti-Black racism is not super foundational to the United States experience of itself. Um, but it's even harder now to resolve for them and everybody else, given I think the general panic about the existential threat of refugees, you know, and resources. Um, that always feels like it's floating in the background to me. Does that sound crazy to you? It feels like it's no. always in the background. I've always I've been thinking about it since like since I since the twenty tens. I mean Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, so it's, it's you know, you're just on this really important issue. And again, like I said, you and I seem to share this experience of in-betweenness. I just at this point don't have nostalgia. Mm-hmm. You know, so like um, my, my father, he's not a nostalgic person, but he can get nostalgic for home because there is a place where he belonged. Mm-hmm. Right? right. But it's not really available to my family. I think it would be available to him. Like he could go back and be okay. But I don't think I could. So, and since I already wasn't at home, you know, to begin with, there, um, I can't go back somewhere to be at home. Right. And as this sort of ethnic strife gets stronger and stronger, and this what now the far right's calling historic America—that's their name for it, right—is being in quotes defended um, in this ethno-nationalist move that Trumpism really is. Um. I can't be at home here either. So, right. So this in-between experience might not be everyone's experience. I think it's much more common for people to have a nostalgic experience. You can go to a place where you're supposed to be at home. 
Um, so I don't want to universalize that. I don't want to claim that everyone's having that experience. But in every case, I will say that it's mythic. I'm willing to say that. <laughs> I mean, when I've asked people who do who do know what it feels like to be at home, it's usually I'll say two things. It sounds like you know there's a collect- connection to the land, which sounds very Heideggerian of me. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> there's a connection to the land and also a sense of you know place that shapes just their existence and then the passed on memory of that sense of place right within their family within their relationships and you know who they are socialized with um but then it makes me think about your point that maybe maybe home or belonging to a country a nationality is more about like the collect like in people feeling nostalgic for what they think their home is that's where home is it's like in that collective nostalgia all together and everyone like referring back to oh yeah that's home or yeah that's american that's where it's taking place i don't know if it's actually taking place like on american soil in the roots yeah. and whatever but i feel like it's taking place in that kind of collective feeling and then that's when you feel like you belong right and i feel like it's very much about people um, and that's why when I've asked people who really don't be- feel like they don't belong anywhere, they say, oh, well, yeah, my home's my family, right? Like if I don't belong anywhere in the world, at least it's in my family. You know, I yeah. have that sense of home there. The precariousness of that community, that family community too, is real. It's not easy to maintain, you know, but yes, I, I agree. So you, so let's make a distinction. Like I'm just thinking as we're talking. So Southern California light. And the smells of Southern California, you know, like the, the natural smells, you know, obviously there's the petrol smell that's everywhere, but, uh, but uh, like hot pine, right? That's a very specific smell in Los Angeles, like when the trees get warm, you know, um, the yellowness of the light. The yellowness, that's very true. Right. Yeah. Um, those are familiar and I like them. You know, I like them. Like I, when I, when I went, I was on the East Coast for a number of years, going to graduate school and lived there for a bit. The air could be dry in the winter, but not, not, not pleasant. Mm-hmm. And the light was always wrong and the place always smelled weird. So like I, when I come to Los Angeles, Southern California, I feel in that sense, it feels familiar and good and I like it. And in that sense, I feel connected to the Southern California land. You know, to the to the geography of the place, to the placeness of, of Southern California, but I never feel like I belong there, right? But I do think it's possible to have both those experiences: to have been raised there, to have it been unquestioned, right? It was not a problem for you to be from there, and then to also feel comfortable in the place, you know, in, in the sort of physical place and, and all that. And I can imagine people having that experience. Um, but it nevertheless, the story about your people belonging there is a story, you know, and it's an important story. Um, there, are, there are places, you know, um, conversations that could be had, uh, probably not on a podcast about this, this issue, but yeah, it's complicated. Let's say that. So I'm going to ask you a very tough question then. Mm-hmm. What do you see the future of this country, but also the world in terms of Everyone wanting to go home, as I put it, the looming climate crisis and the threat to some people see it as a threat of refugees and just loss of 
home or way of life. I don't know. Do you do you see it in an optimistic light and like we're going to embrace a society that is all about in betweenness and <laughs> multicultural? I mean, I think that's the kind of neoliberal. Yeah. Hope, but so yeah. I mean, again, let's. This is a good moment. Like, I think we can, you know, we can mark this and and. Neoliberalism is a, a very fuzzy concept and it gets used in a lot of ways. But let's talk about it as a, talk about it as a global market society that relies on an idea of a kind of citizenless world in, in the simple sense of internationality, right? A kind of capitalism and Marxism have this in common, right? A kind of sense of a global, in, a global industrial project where people are just people, right? And their nationality isn't the most important thing about them. Right. And therefore, you know, free movement of labor, free movement of products and all that. And everything's intertwined. OK. You know, th th I think you're right there. there. There is this sort of neoliberal, if we call it that, right, uh, pipe dream uh, of that. And it's a perfectly powerful and correct critique, that neoliberalism, that it, what it really does is universalizes a 18th, 19th century European sense of what it is to be a person and what things should be like. Um, so, you know, it never has existed, um, and it's not going to exist, uh, in that, in that way, right. That kind of Kantian dream, you know, but am I optimistic or pessimistic? Well, it depends on our time frame. Um, <laughs> um, I think there's no, what? <laughs> I was going to say, how much time do we have? Yeah. So what's our time frame? So let, let's pick a, let, let's say 25 years. Okay. In the 25 year time frame, I'm very concerned. I think the, we'll start to see the real ravages of climate uh, crisis, the climate uh, crisis. And already, you know, uh, in Greece, um, through across the Mediterranean, um, you're seeing North African, African, Middle Eastern refugees uh, and the panic. And, and, and I'll come back to this in a second, you know, the, the panic in Greece where they're all landing. I think we'll see more of that. I think we'll see stronger, harsher more violent ethno-nationalism around the world. I think we'll see more civil wars around the world. I think that's inevitable. The rise of China is a really big deal in this regard. That has to be thought about. China's doing it as well. They're concerned about their borders. They're concerned about Central Asia. They're, you know, they, they have their concerns as well. But we, to be fair, and we should be you know, honest about it, there aren't unlimited resources everywhere. There aren't unlimited resources. So ha bringing in a million people into your country, um, if you're Greece is a lot, or if you're Germany, a million Syrians or you know uh, Tunisians, or it's a lot, and they don't come without their own history of anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism and the sense of right, like that you screwed up their country. Like they don't just come happy and grateful; they come hurt and scared themselves and scarred in a way. Um, so these are all real concerns, uh, and and I sort of been tracking the rise of what got called the alt-right or the far right, but I think it's fair to call the reactionary right for 15 years. And you can see as there, the, the left made more and more brazen claims about the U.S. becoming a minority, majority minority country, their sense of identity, white identity got stronger and stronger and their panic about it got stronger and stronger. So there are these kind of ethno-nationalists, but they're also sort of accelerationist capitalists, right? Who feel like this whole order is coming down. It's an untenable order. And uh, they see the, you know, the refugee crisis as potentially ending, you know, a kind of like a viable civilization. 
So I'm very concerned in this, in this what we call medium term. You know, and I think we have to be clear-eyed about it. I, I don't think pretending like everything's just going to be okay um, is a useful thing to do. Um, I think that the, de- the tendency to then collapse into existentially violent identity politics is high. We have a moral responsibility, to, though, I think, to think about how we might respond to all that um, and transform our political categories, our political, you know, expand our political imagination about how we might be as people. The United States is, it should be a really great place to think about these things. We've never really done actual assimilation. There's always this kind of like gross lobsters or whatever is crabs pulling each other down, you know, in assimilation in quotes, right? Uh, but it's a polyglot, ethnically diverse, unfederalized rather than national identity country, you know, with, a, with its own weird myths. Um, yeah. It should be possible to do that over time. Um, with civil rights pressures and, and 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 very difficult campaigns ahead, but yeah, I'm very worried uh, in the, in the medium term. But I think we have a moral responsibility to try to address them. And you know, conversations like this, thoughts like this, have they have to happen. <laughs> so, and I yeah. think you know, I think they are happening. I mean, that's where my hope lies. Is like any anything that's articulated at some point will take hold somewhere. Yeah. Like no matter how small, I know that I am like not either. I'm. Not, I feel like I'm not either pessimist or optimist. I'm just kind of like, I can I can do both. You know, um, you know, like the conversations I'm having on here are conversations I'm having with friends, right? Or like you see on social media, and I don't know. I'm kind of of the opinion that yes, I am worried and I'm concerned in the same way you are, because I feel like indications of everything that's coming have been here for a long time. Um, it's not like just today. It's been like the last 10, 15 years. And so it's kind of like I'm bracing and I feel like people I talk to or just this collective generation I somewhat identify with, we're like bracing because we know what's coming. But at the same time, I feel like we're in a very, I'll just drop it in here, postmodernist moment <laughs> where like really everything's liquid. Like Anything can happen ideology, ideologically. It feels like it feels like from one day to the next. I guess I'm trying to say like in the grand scale, in the big, in the big things to worry about. Yeah, like I, I worry. But in terms of like how people attitudes and personal attitudes, what what's expected now of government and society and laws and politics? Like I feel like that's changing rapidly, and like from one day to the next, it's kind of. It feels like everything's being overturned constantly. That's right. So let's let's maybe we can end uh, on this. So there are different ways of thinking about possibility, and I'm not. I I am sort of inclined towards a historic historicist position here, which is I don't think anything. And I don't mean this in a to be glib, right? But I think what's possible is quite limited, um, and it's limited by the stories that are dominant at the time what it's possible to imagine given your upbringing and the stories that are, you know, being circulated. And then obviously those are influenced by the circumstances. So I'll I'll actually uh, end on a kind of optimistic note here. Identity politics for me, when it's a vulgar identity politics, this kind of metaphysical conflictual identity politics rather than a tactical one, um, is a real problem. And really my sense is that it tends to exacerbate itself. 
And then that becomes really dangerous and unproductive from my point of view. So if we avoid a kind of, if we can sort of find a way out of a vulgar identity politics where we're seeking to stay alive, you've used the word survive a number of times, you know, um, just to stay alive. What are our options there? Our real intellectual political options are neoliberalism or a kind of a wild utopian idea of um, absolutely unlimited resources where hospitality is possible. You know, where like everyone can come in, everything will be fine, you know. And the two dominant modes are a kind of nativism and a neoliberalism. And the nativism tends to be anti-liberal. And that means it makes it kind of friend-enemy, metaphysically combative. Um, and the liberal one is uh, problematic in all the ways that we all know, you know, uh, the way we've talked about, but also in, in terms of a cover for all manner of violence. What we need is a, a really concerted effort at political imagination. And that involves a deeper understanding of the forces that are allowing you to think right now so that structure your thinking. If you're not aware of the way your thinking is being structured, it's impossible to even begin to think differently or to, to solve a problem. And I feel like the thing you said, which was so interesting and so right, which is a kind of inversion approach in Gen Z, throw it all out. Mm -hmm. You're not throwing anything out. You're simply working inside a kind of simple dialectic for and against. And you should feel revolutionary because we need some kind of revolutionary spirit and energy around it, but not without really careful assessment of the forces at work shaping and limiting your thought. And I know there's this backlash against academia, backlash against academia, and like all this knowledge is produced by oppressive white people and so on. But man, it's shaping how we think. It is the water we swim in. So it's required as like an intense, careful critique, not a dismissal alone. Uh, you know, you heard me say this before. The critique is in pretty good shape now, right? But it has to be taken up by your generation. Like that, the understand, the critical understanding has to be taken up because it limits what it is you can invent. And I'm a big believer in that idea. Not everyone believes that idea, but I'm a big believer in that idea that there's that limitation. So I always say at the end of my class, it's like, we're just counting on you. Right. Yeah. We really are counting on you to be the generation that invents something, but you can't invent ex nihilo, you know? So I'm glad you guys are trying to turn everything upside down. And I'm really excited by it. I think it's great because, you know, all the pieties and so on to hell with all that. Um, but I hope there's like a real engagement with the history and the limits of the cultures that, you know, we're all shaped by um, when you do that. A lot rides on it, man. A lot rides on it. Yeah. With the tools we're given, which are all of history has led to this point. I know it's... Um, so you, have, you all have to grapple with this, with this ethno-nationalist moment and the climate crisis. And um, it's not easy. Yeah. No, that, I'm, I'm glad we ended on that note. I think it was, uh, it was very real. And I appreciate that it was like, this is where we're at. Um, and this is kind of the tools we have. And I really appreciate your time and going down every avenue of, <laughs> we covered so much. Um, 
It was a pleasure. Always great to talk to you, Noah. The In-Between Project is recorded in Miami, Florida and Santiago, Chile. Produced and edited by me, Noah Richard. Music is composed by Diego Richard. The In-Between Project is a podcast made for the nonprofit organization Humanity in Action. Check out more from the In-Between Project at our Instagram, link down below in the transcript, or send me a message to my Instagram or email, also linked down below.